Hey, this is Lara, and you're listening to the Slavic Connection here at UT Austin. As you know, this podcast is brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies. And while we've touched a lot on the topics of Russian and East European, we haven't gotten a lot of chances to get into the Eurasian side of things. So we're finally here to check that box with Dr. Bella Jordan. I teach Russian uh, next semester as well, so I feel like a very blessed person. Who gets to teach both my father language and my mother tongue? <laughs> I was joined in the studio by Katya and Matt. What did we talk about today, Katya? Well, today we delved a little bit into language revitalization, particularly in the titular republic of Sakhai Yakutia, that is in northeastern Siberia. Uh, Dr. Jordan is also a linguist teaching a Yakut language course this semester. Yeah, we had a really great conversation and I got to learn how to say butterfly in Yakut, so take a listen. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Bella, welcome. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. There was this really interesting event recently where this guy in Udmurtia, um, I, I'm sure you probably saw, kind of lit himself on fire. And it's just this really fascinating story now and understanding the reasons why he did it. And Udmurt language is, is really declining. There's uh, 100,000 fewer speakers of Udmurt than there were 10 years ago. So it's really, and they say it's almost 30% of the, of the Udmurt population has declined. And so, you know, this kind of national question in Russia is often avoided, but it's still kind of rearing its head. I mean, I was wondering what it's like, for example, in Yakutia with things like this, kind of how the, any, the tensions between the Yakutia as a nation is resolved with being part of the Russian state and kind of what is the state of that right now? Yes, uh, yeah, the self-immolation case is usually example of extreme uh, as a nationalism. We see it once in a while in Tibet. It's kind of uh, the, the last statement saying things are really in crisis. Um, in Sakhai Yakutia, Historically, um, I mean, Sakhar has been part of the Russian Empire since uh, 1632. That's the official date on every, uh, you know, postcard and souvenir that were produced in the Soviet era. So there were obviously different periods of coexistence. In the Soviet times, they were always portrayed as peaceful coexistence. Mm -hmm. And the voluntary joining of Yakutia, um, you know, within the Russian Empire. And of course... uh, there were always the Yakut um, national elite who would um, doubt that statement. Uh, some of them during the Stalin era were persecuted and uh, killed and not just sent to gulags. When people expressed some uh, ethno-nationalist ideas, they were Im- immediately liquidated. You know, that was Stalin's modus operandi. After the uh, Soviet Union collapse, there was really a lot of... Um, linguistic and ethnic revival and cultural revival. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Sakhai Yakutia, the very first uh, movement towards uh, education in the national language. And so if in Yakutsk, the capital of Sakhai Yakutia, we had two um, schools that had instruction in the Yakut language. Now they have multiple schools. And it's not just uh, elementary school, but nowadays people uh, send their children to the kindergarten where you have bilingual education. Um, and of course, uh, emphasis on foreign languages as well, not just Russian. Russian is still lingua franca of the former Soviet empire. And we see it not just in the Russian Federation, but in some uh, former republics, like in Central Asia, for instance. Um, 
there were periods, there were two events that were kind of um, violent and tragic. In 1979, there was a confrontation between two groups of young people, uh, of Sahar, young people and Russian, uh, ethnic, ethnically Russian uh, young people. And it ended up in, you know, shootings and violence. And there was a huge thing. And people in, from Moscow came and they said, oh, you guys, you have to like... Uh, deal something with this nationalist tendencies. And then another one was in perestroika time. It was in 1986. In spring, again, it was a conflict between two different ethnic groups. And one of my um, students at, at my university uh, wrote a letter, open letter to Gorbachev saying, look, this cannot go on. We as a nation are repressed and something has to be done. And very uh, incredibly, that letter reached the office of Gorbachev, and there was another commission coming from Moscow and said, let's look, what's going on here? Why are you not getting along? And uh, part of this feeling that the local uh, indigenous population usually has in ethnic republics, what Lenin called uh, defensive nationalism. And it is a natural reaction, I think, to the, um, uh, the government policy of Russification. So you're all little nations, the Russians are big brothers and sisters, and in order to achieve higher cultural standards, you need to be educated in Russian. You should speak excellentless Russian. You should cite Tolstoy and Pushkin and so on and so forth. And uh, natural people who have their own traditions, their own language, they're not quite comfortable with that idea of Russification. So to finish my answer to your question here, I think the tendency right now in the post-Soviet space is the derussification. Mm -hmm. People trying to revive their languages. Mm -hmm. And in some places, like in Sahar, Tiva, uh, it's more successful. successful Less yeah. successful it may be in places like Buryatia, where mm -hmm. um, Buryats really make not even plurality, but minority in their own homelands. Sure. And this is the case as geographers, as ethnic geographers, historical, cultural geographers, we emphasize that the number of indigenous population, their percentage within their own homeland is extremely important. And the tragic events in Edmutia actually kind of manifest that. You decline as a population, your language is not um, long as spoken as widely as it should be. And then wow. we have events like this. Thank you so much for that answer. I think that's exactly correct because the way the Udmurts frame it for themselves is they say, so they live right ne next to Tatarstan. And in Tatarstan, the Tatars make up more than 50%, but because the Udmurts is that is low and declining, that's that's the, the number that's focused on for why they get this raw deal, why every why things are um, are worse for them. And they're and they're really concerned. And now this kind of affair has has kind of rekindled this kind of um, uh, ethnic tension. Do you, do you feel that the fall of the Soviet Union reduced the tensions of this national question or did it, or it has, has kind of the new Russian state that we're seeing, is it increasing those tensions? You know, as my professor, favorite professor Dolittle used to say, if you give a simple answer to a complex uh, question, <laughs> most likely it's wrong. <laughs> so let me no. think about this for yeah. a minute. Uh, it's an excellent question. Now I have to like, oh, look at that and that. 
Yeah. No. I guess well, it's a, as you said, you kind of already gave a hint to the answer, saying, look how things are doing. Tatarstan is doing so well with their ethnic national language programs while Edmutia is declining. So it could be, we should look maybe at each republic as an individual yeah. case. Yeah, absolutely. Because as I said, when I look, for instance, let's compare Tiva uh, um, another Turkic speaking people who live in Siberia. Uh, not far removed from Buryatia, but in Buryatia um, there was so much Russified. I still mm. meet people of my age and even younger in their 40s who do not speak Buryat. They have passive knowledge of the language. They understand. They might even read, but they don't speak fluently. In Tiva, because they didn't find gold until later, <laughs> there was not so much rationalization with another concept, uh, the movement and settlement of ethnic Slavs, it doesn't have to be Russians, Russian speakers, let's say, Belarusians, Ukrainians during the Soviet times, mm, Russian-speaking urbanites from any other um, republic. Um, so they never made less than 78%. And so there was not even a threat of Russification because most of the schools just kept uh, teaching in Tuvan. Uh, meanwhile, Buryatia was quite an opposite situation. And, uh, uh, you know, project like this happens throughout the world during so-called modernization era when bigger states it happened in Canada when Inuit children were uh, taken to boarding schools and they were not allowed to speak their own language and now they lost not with language you lose your tradition your history your identity and that perhaps is the biggest uh, personal crisis for a person you know losing your identity And uh, it happened in Australia with Aborigines, and it happened throughout the Soviet Union. And in Buryatia case, it's that's what they say. And Bella, we cannot quite get back our language, but we're trying at least to pursue our tradition. One of the visiting scholars here at UT at Chris told me, I'm finding my identity through Lamaist Buddhism. I'm trying to learn the language. It's difficult at my age, but at least I'm trying to revive uh, some religious traditions. Mm -hmm. And in Sakhai Kutsia, one of the biggest success of cultural revival was through the revival of celebration of a Sech, mm -hmm. you know, the uh, celebration of the uh, traditional New Year for the Sakha, which coincides with summer solstice. Yeah. And I heard that you'll be talking about Olan Ho and the Sech later in your. Uh, interviews, so I'm not going to go there. Okay. But revival of uh, such huge traditions is enormous. Yeah. So I have a question about this revival of language and revival of culture, especially in the kind of an atmosphere of rising ethno-nationalism within Russia, like Slavic nationalism, um, and the implementations of policies. Like, for example, I think last year there was um, a law enacted that indigenous languages were not mandatory. Um, it wasn't mandatory to teach them anymore um, because there was such backlash from, I think in Buryatia, there was a Buryat moms against mandatory learning of Buryats for non-ethnic Buryats, um, something crazy like that. So how does that reconcile when we have some titular republics, some ethnic republics that do have a large number of ethnic Russians or ethnic Slavs living there? Um, how can there be a simultaneous um, revival of appreciation for indigenous cultural heritage at that same time um, <clears throat> without them feeling marginalized? Or is that's that right. impossible? That's right. right? That's right. Um, 
Tatarstan is a republic usually uh, a showcase how the Russians and Tatars coexist peacefully when it comes to language policies, because Russians are not uh, required, uh, they, they don't um, demand from them to study Tatar. Uh, Tatar children usually are fluent in Russian and they live there in like in the middle of Russian Federation on the Volga. Um, uh, there has been this issue discussed lately, and some American linguistic anthropologists actually address this issue. And uh, I know one uh, such scholar who came to Yakutia and interviewed uh, mothers saying, "How? what is your attitude towards bilingual kindergartens and this and that? And she always got uh, mixed answers. You know, um, I think that usually in republics like Buryatia, Sahai, and others, it's the bureaucrats who decide. And they usually say, look, we're looking at the statistics. And that's why the numbers of indigenous people are so important. They say, okay, if we have, let's say, 10,000 Russian kids and 8,000, so we'll have 10 schools in Russian and then eight uh, schools in, with language and instruction in Buryat. But then there are movements like you described when people can move for uh, mixed bilingual education. So I think it's in flux. I don't have any statistic that would allow me to make any statement. Mm -hmm. I think what you referred to is actually quite recent, maybe last decade. So it's something that is still developing, I right. think. Yeah. yeah, so I don't have any like concrete data to give, <laughs> give you at this point. But it's a tendency, yes. For sure. Because one of the good women uh, mothers uh, in the interview said, yes, of course I want my child to speak mother tongue, you could, Saha. But at the same time, if what if she wants to go and study in Moscow? I don't want her to be um, shortchanged and not to speak fluent Russian. So there is always this pragmatic uh, attitude towards uh, education in right. general. Right. But at the same time, I also think that there's kind of this, there's a stigma attached to not knowing your native language, but at the same time, they know Russian perfectly well. So on in one hand, they have like that, to their advantage, but on the other hand, they're a disadvantage in that they don't have these cultural ties, right? So they're kind of stuck in this liminal space of not being Russian ethnically, but not really being Saha, um, which I think is kind of silly to demarcate that, to be like, oh, if you don't know the language, then you know it, you're not a part of your people anymore. Um, well, and I, I know don't think it's that extreme, but of course, yes, I, I know. But that's why they're called lost generation, you know. Right. And the people who suffer first, they're the people who understand. They could have known their language, but because there was such Soviet policy, they lost that opportunity. Uh, I agree. There is some stigma attached to people who look could, they are ethnically could, but they can only express themselves in Russian. Uh, but I don't think it that they're made feel that they're not part. It's, I don't know, psychologically for me, it's more their own tragedy rather than people making all these demarcations. But that's my humble opinion. Um, could I just ask, uh, as someone coming in kind of not as well informed about this topic, um, you mentioned that there's been a lot of surveys of mothers, of you know government officials, of asking what are their opinions on preserving these languages that have the potential to die out. But what is kind of the youth point of view? Because it's sort of on them, right, to preserve the, this heritage, this culture, this language. Are they seeing kind of a pull going more towards you know their ties ethnically, or are they also sort of seeing it of like, oh, well, I'm going to go work in Moscow anyway. Why do I need that sort of mm -hmm. thing? Excellent question. Uh, actually, uh, when I say cultural and linguistic revival, 
uh, it means that the youth is uh, actually enthusiastic about it because there can don't be a revival. Old people only can come and revive. Right. Yeah, revival means that not just opening of the schools, not more programs on TV and radio in the native languages, which in Yakutia, by the way, it's not just Saha, the language of the titular group, but we also have a broadcast in Evenki language, for instance, which is an ethnic minority within the Republic, uh, in the Ven language, sometimes even in Dolgan, Yukagir, and so on, very, very small uh, numbered peoples, but they are indigenous people of the same land. Um, more publication uh, of the books. And Saha, of course, were luckier because even in the Soviet times, there were always parallel publications uh, of the literary journals. For instance, there was a Russian publication, Polarne Zvezda, the Polar Star, and there was Hotugusulus, the same kind of uh, publication, sometimes a little bit different in the Yakut language. And my dad, who was a philologist, you know, and he studied languages all his life, he said, oh, the Sakha, very lucky, because we have more writers than the Republic of Dagestan. Dagestan has 31 official languages, and of course, they had a lot of writers. Uh, but Sakha was always, had very strong literary tradition. And in part, it's because it's based on this epic folklore tradition, first oral, and then it was written down, now declared by UNESCO, uh, the um, intangible monument of culture. It's been translated into French, English. You can read, you, be, you can be in London and you can read Olonko nowadays. It's a huge volume. And so that gives you enormous pride in your literary uh, tradition. And because of that, now I can see young people actually rapping in Yakut, you know. I go on a Facebook and I see people actually uh, writing short messages to each other in Yakut. So, yes, it's a true revival because the youth is actually doing it. Yeah, and they're utilizing, you know, social media and YouTube exactly. and stuff like that. And for so. me, it's a sure sign that it is being, uh, it's alive, it's uh, healthy, uh, phenomenon, so people actually communicating in their own language. It reminds me of the Welsh situation when I was in North Wales, I saw people Instagramming in Welsh. In South Wales it's lost, in North Wales people speak it everywhere. And so when we speak about unique case of Celtic language revival, we always refer to North Wales. And I'm actually quite happy when I go back to Sahar and I see that. What could the same thing be said about Saha Yukutia, like Mirni, for example, in Tixi, there were there would be less of the Saha youth because they're such heavy, like industry-driven areas. So Russian would be the predominant language there. Correct? That's true. Uh, both Tixi and Mirni, of course, are creations of the Soviet policy of uh, finding resources and then building the whole, you know, whole um, city around it. Nerengri is a good example near the coal. Uh, Mirni, of course, near the um, diamond pipelines and so on. Uh, Tixi, uh, seaport, extremely important during the Soviet, um, you know, Soviet use of the sea, uh, northern sea route. Uh, indeed, I've been to all of those places. And of course, those are more international communities, I would say, or multi-ethnic rather, because people were enticed to come and work in the, in, in the north and uh, bigger salaries, all kinds of materialistic incentives. And so, yeah, very few Yakut people live there. And of course, naturally, maybe no even schools there with Yakut language of instruction. In Tixi, I think they had some. Mirni, maybe one. I actually have relatives who live there. And uh, it was a closed city. So in the Soviet times, I had to have an invitation to go there. 
because the security issues. And they still kept, uh, you know, robbing those diamond uh, reserves. Anyways, and uh, yeah, so quite a different situation. I agree. And in Sakhai Yakutia, the Sakhai yet to make plura- uh, majority in their own homeland. So their plurality, almost 500,000 people, which by northern standards, huge. It is the most numerous Siberian um, nation, ethnic group, uh, if you will, or people. Uh, it's always very politically uh, charged mm-hmm. uh, concept, right? Are you people? Are you a small ethnic group? Are you um, a, a nation? Of course, the Sahara people of them think of themselves as a nation. It's a small, big nation of Siberia. Um, quite strong national identity. But the concern that I express when I teach Northern Lands and Cultures course is about small-numbered indigenous people of the North who are really threatened. Their cultures are really threatened. Yeah, I have a question about that. So you brought up the Evenki, for example. And what I'm fascinated by is that, is how, what's the, what is the, so we talked about, you know, for example, in Udmurtia, the dynamic is the Udmurts trying to preserve their culture against the Russians. It's really just one against one. And it's the, the, the National Republic against the, the Russians, so to speak. But what's the experience like for somebody like the Evenki, who it's the Saha already have that dynamic with the Russians, but then the Evenki might have that dynamic towards like the Saha, for example. And so how, what, what, is, what is the state of preservation of something like Evenki in Saha? Yes, uh, excellent uh, question. A Canadian scholar, Gail Fondel, she worked with Evenki communities throughout Siberia uh, in Krasnoyarsk region. We have Evenki Autonomous Oblast, um, oh, Okrug, sorry, which is a smaller territorial uh, administrative unit. She worked in Irkutsk Oblast, uh, in Buryatia, we have Evenki communities, and then Saha. And she made a comparative analysis. And I discussed this issue with her many times uh, when we meet at the conferences. Uh, the difference I always emphasize in Saha was that Saha wanted to portray itself because they didn't want to behave like Russians towards. <laughs> indigenous minorities. Uh, from the very beginning, I think in 92 or 91, they made uh, a law that the Evenki or event or Dolgan communities will have self-governing. And they kind of assigned their territorial units where they will have home rule. They would decide what they do with their reindeer herds, what language of instruction, everything. And so when we talked with Gail, she always said, yeah, you know, the Evenki and Buryatia are unhappy because they don't get anything from the local government. And I would say, but look, in Sahar, in my own republic, <laughs> things are much better because the Sahar made a point that we actually will give more rights to indigenous Evenki within the Sahar Republic. Wow. So again, it's individual cases. You move from Evenkia yeah. in Krasnoyarsk region where Dr. Campbell, um, my colleague from anthropology yeah. department, works and he knows so much about that. Gail, who works throughout Siberia, mm-hmm. me, who knows the situation in Sahar. So we discussed that. Um, wow, that's fascinating. Mm, it is. It's absolutely fascinating. So previously you mentioned that you teach a course called Northern Peoples and Cultures. Northern Lands and Northern Cultures. Lands and Cultures. Um, you're also teaching a Yakut language course this semester. Would you tell us a little bit more about that, how it came to be? Um, 
and what you're working on in it. And this is like uh, a joy and delight of my life that I, I I feel very fortunate. And so I get to actually teach my mother tongue at the American University at the graduate level, which I think is quite unprecedented. Um, as far as I know, even in Turkey, they don't teach Yikut language. So we have this unique situation because uh, Kiri, who is now a doctoral student in anthropology, she came um, three years ago to me and she said, I want to do my research in Sakhar Republic and I don't want to do it in Russian or English. I want to do it in the native language. And that's how it all started. We started with the alphabet letters. And then a year and a half later, she was able to give a public presentation uh, on Xenofontev, Gabriel Xenofontev, who was one of the um, founding scholars of Sahar uh, culture, uh, who wrote about shamanism and so on and so forth. And people kept asking, really, you started with alphabet letters? And then, uh, so this summer she wrote to me um, from Sahar and said, I want to keep going and I want to be, to get to a very advanced level. So I can be fluent in Yikut. And I said, oh, wow, of course, I will be happy and honored. And then comes our new graduate student, uh, master students, uh, Katie Tuyare Gorov, Kreti uh, Gorov. And she is already very advanced in her knowledge of both Russian and Yikut. And so we had a unique situation where we could actually teach a seminar. Um, you know, and so we've met just a few times, but I've, I already, as a teacher, can see a lot of progress because we cite poetry, we sing songs, we have dialogues. So I have, I'm very optimistic. Are, are people in Yakutia aware of what you're doing and happy to tell this? We story? haven't yet put it on Facebook. <laughs> I, have, I was just a little bit superstitious, like any person who comes from Russia. You know, like <laughs> I know it will be successful, but I just was like. Yeah, just yeah, a few sure. weeks yeah, more, sure, and then sure, I'll say, look, sure. the, and we actually meet in this room, and we uh -huh. use a computer, and the, and the, uh, we write on the board here. And then uh, just a few, what was it? Yesterday, uh, uh, our uh, director of the center came to my office and said, well, what do you think? Do you think your graduate students would like to um, study advanced decode next year? And I said, of course. We're extremely enthusiastic about that. And if and we have enormous support of our um, director, Dr. Mary Neuberger. And uh, she says, we are exploding. We're now teaching Eurasian languages, not just Slavic. And though, of course- Living up to all, the name of the exactly, center. Exactly. Yeah. Of course, we're, uh, Dr. Robert's already teaching Romanian, so it's not just Slavic. So yeah, but Romanian, European, and Yikut, and perhaps Tuvan in future are Eastern Turkic languages. So this is an incredibly unique situation. Right, and just for perspective, how many places in the United States are the Eastern Turkic languages taught in university? As far as I know, none. None, wow. Because language, Turkic languages that are taught in, perhaps in Monterey or Indiana, uh, could be Uzbek, Kazakh, yes. mm -hmm. sure. uh, out of Turkic, mm -hmm. of Central Asia, Tajik of Iranian, sure. but of Central Asia. Frankly, we have what we call in Russia the so-called Sarafan radio. If I knew that if he could were taught somewhere at the graduate level at any university in the world, I would have known. So that's what I told Mary. I said, you know, I doubt that someone teaching uh, you could uh, at the university level, not undergrad, but graduate, advanced level. 
Is it, is it a difficult language to learn? Because, you know, with, with language learning, they always say like, oh, it takes five years or, oh, you have to go to the actual country to really get a handle on the accent and the intonation. So if I were to start, you know, taking this class today, at what point, like, how, when would I get a handle on it? Like, how, how difficult is it compared to, say, English or Russian? Uh, I grew up bilingual, sp speaking both Sikut and, uh, and Russian, and uh, so it's a little bit. I'm a little bit, uh, it's a little bit situation that I am in. But I think it's not difficult language. And think I think that Turkic languages are not difficult in general. Once you get used to Cyrillic alphabet, I think grammar is not difficult yeah. because as a person, um, uh, you know, before I became geographer. I studied philology and linguistics, and that's how I kind of dare even express my opinion <laughs> on this subject. Um, and I did study Indo-European and non-Indo-European languages myself, um, including uh, Turkic languages. And so I think Yikut is not difficult because you have, first of all, synharmony of vowels. It's a agglutinative language. So in that sense, in terms of phonetics, it could be predictable. And in terms of word formation, it's predictable. For instance, if you have a front vowel, U, you cannot say U in the, in the rest of the word. You can only say, let's say the word butterfly in Yikut. Beautiful word. I love it. Urumechi. It's all frontal vowels. U, U, E. But if you say, if I, if I say something with back vowels, like uh, uh, reindeer in Saha, Taba, and I would say plural, I would say Taba-lar. It's A, A, A. And so in that sense, phonetically, and from the morphological point of view, it's kind of predictable formation of the language. Oh, yeah, it makes sense. There are very few exceptions. And I think for the students, it's always important because when people start studying language, a word is pronounced this way and it's written this way. And there are regular verbs and there are these exceptions. <laughs> and psychologically, people get a little bit afraid. And I don't see this factor when you study uh, Yikut or Tuvan or wow. Turkish or Kazakh. So there's no excuse. We should more <laughs> There's no excuse not to study Turkic languages. You're a great salesman right? for the language. It I'm makes sold. you well, want to You know, I teach Russian uh, next semester as well, so I feel like a very blessed person uh -huh. who gets to teach both my father language and my, my mother, mother tongue. <laughs> right. You know, so I feel in a unique, absolutely fantastic situation. And that's why I have to express my gratitude to Dr. Mary Neuberger, because without her support... This could never have happened. She's just an incredible leader that we have. Well, Dr. Jordan, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. Um, it was really exciting to talk to you and also to let the world or our listenership know that um, Yakut is being taught at this university. And it's very much alive and it's, uh, yeah, and it's flourishing here in Austin, Texas. Absolutely. Mahtanabit. That means thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit slavxradio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Hey, this is Lara, and you're living... Living... You're living. I'm living. You're living this. it. You're here for it. Um, I'm just tired. Hey, you're listening to the Slavic Connection. This is Lara. Yeah, I didn't like that either. I can see now why Tom and Matt hate doing this. Cause this is a, 
I'm getting so nervous right now. <laughs> I've forgotten every word, but I know. I don't know what my name is anymore. <laughs> Hello? Hello? <laughs>